the Democrats trot out a rapist, kidnapper, and a murderer at the DNC, Joe Biden exploits child with a speech disorder, a special guest joins us, and the rest of the convention. All that and more on this episode of The Johnny Ray Show. So the Democrats put on quite the snooze fest for the first two nights of the DNC, but the last two nights more than made up for all the craziness we could expect from their convention. We'll get into all the details of the DNC in just a moment, but first. Today, podcasts are all the rage. Everyone wants a voice, and now Anchor has given you that voice. Anchor is the easiest way to podcast, whether it's political or fun, about parenting, or just your day-to-day routine. Anchor is the free, easy way to get heard. Anchor allows you to create, edit, and publish your podcast right from your smartphone or your computer. Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so you don't have to. It's everything you need to create a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M to get started. And welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. And if, like most of America, you missed the DNC convention this week, well, you've come to the right place. I have all the play-by-play and the commentary. The first two nights were lackluster events with most of the non-important Democrat supporters being trotted out on Skype and Zoom meetings to show support for old Slow Joe. But night three and night four were stupendous for the craziness, okay? While I'd normally go in order, the last two nights blended together in a mass of crazy and radical, the Democrats had Chris Coons and Elizabeth Warren, along with all 300 or so Democrats who started off the Democratic presidential nomination running, they all had Zoom meeting that they promoted as a live, but clearly it wasn't, as it was at night during the call, yet Bernie Sanders' backyard of his third house was lit up with the midday sun. So my guess is either it wasn't live or he was in his vacay home in the USSR. But what's even crazier than that was they had Donna Hilton speak. And for those of you who don't know who she is or recognize her, don't beat yourself up. She's a leftist loon bag. Donna Hilton was among seven people arrested and indicted in 1985 for the kidnap, rape, torture, starvation, and eventual murder of a man. Thomas Vigliarolo was a New York businessman who Donna and six other men and women kidnapped. They held him somewhere between 15 and 20 days. They starved him. They tortured him. They beat him. They burned him with cigarettes and cigars. They even raped him with a steel pipe to the point that the man died. She served 27 years of a 25-to-life prison sentence before she was released. Now compare having that person speak at a national convention in which her platform is supposed to be one of compassion for human beings, love, and caring. Hmm? 
Donald Trump announced that he would have the McCloskey couple from St. Louis at the RNC and the left lost their minds. So it's okay to have a rapist, torturing, kidnapping, murderer speak, but not a pro-Second Amendment couple who simply defended their home from rioters. Let that sink in, okay? And speaking of cringe things the Democrats did during this laughable Barnum and Bailey circus of a convention, they exploited a child with a speech impediment to push a false narrative in an attempt to shield Slow Joe from being mocked nationwide. Braden Harrington, a 13-year-old New Hampshire boy, was trotted out on camera because he has a speech defect. Braden has a stutter, and of course, since half or better of America has been mocking Slow Joe for the better half of a year, the Democrats decided, hey, you know what? If we trot out a child with a stutter, the right can't mock Joe anymore because to mock Joe's gaffes would be to mock this child. Um, that's disgusting. And what could you expect from the left but disgusting, vile human garbage? They then went on to push a video package where they gave a backstory to why Joe has the the little stammer that he does and the, the gaffes that he's so well known for these days. But what doesn't add up is that if some childhood trauma that they want to blame for his stammering and his gaffes, why would it just show up 60 years into his life? Because you can go look at the, the thousands of videos of him talking. None of them are there. He's never stuttering there. He's never stammering there. He's never gafting there. It's crazy to me because the left hates children. I mean, they lambasted the Covington Catholic kid. They cancel cultured mini AOC from Twitter for months, getting her shut down completely. They had the cops called on the Trump-supporting nine-year-old who was selling lemonade. They support killing babies up to and including childbirth as a deadline. They lambast any child who's a conservative, but they want to push their children into the forefront like Greta Thunberg, the ever-knowing child activist for climate change. Or this child who probably doesn't even know Joe Biden. He probably doesn't. He... His parents know Joe Biden. They're probably liberal, so he has to be one too. I mean, his speech was great. For him to overcome that on a day-to-day -day is amazing, but kind of falls short pushing the false narrative that Joe Biden has the same or even a similar issue. A stutter or a speech issue doesn't just pop up 60 or 70 years into your life. It just doesn't. Go back to any of the million videos of him speaking as a senator or even as the vice president. Never a stutter. Never even a slight trip up. Why would it, why would it do it now all of a sudden? Come on, man. 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 No, I'm serious. I'm being deadly earnest. I'll tell you why. It's because Joe Biden has slipped 
into dementia and the left needed a way to paddle him afloat until November. That's why. But fear not, when Biden gaffs his way out of the election, the left will do what they do best, and that's blame Kamala Harris and begin the four-year fight for a way to get Trump out part two. Now, we have a call from our special guest, Joe Johnson. He has his own podcast called Not Touching My Nose. Please welcome Joe Johnson. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, and so you have a podcast. What's the name of the podcast? What's it about? Uh, my podcast is, is called Not Touching My Nose. Um, basically, it's talking about the two things that should never be talked about at the same time, politics and religion. And what people don't understand, I think, is that these things are becoming more and more connected. Or, and, you know, we have certain guides to try to get through this time. Um, and there is a Q&A for just religious uh, purposes if people want to ask me questions about the Bible. Okay. Okay. So, so what are your what are your religious stances? What just a basic overview of them? Well, um, that there is there is a heaven, there's a hell. Um, that people just don't go for being a, a quote unquote nice person. Um, there's certain things that you have to do, um, and there's a certain way that you have to live, and you have to be very careful um, of the things you support. Because in some cases, these things get accounted to you. And that, that's just a very basic overview. Okay, okay. And, and okay, now I'll get into the real, the real nitty-gritty, the political views. What, what's your yes. political overview? Well, if there was a scale that would uh, more appropriately, con you know, uh, concern me, I would have to have a... Super conservative. Okay. I would be I would be like a like some sort of weird mix between conservatism and libertarian. Okay. And the fact that you know there are things that should be saved like values or anything like that, but at the end of the day, it should be your choice to live by them. Okay. Okay. So so you're more of the less government libertarian but but you're still conservative second amendment stuff like that exactly exactly that's that's about where i would fall i think i'd be a little more conservative than libertarian just because of the the drug aspect i'm not uh much of a libertarian on the on the legalizing of drugs and stuff like that i know a lot of libertarians are pushing for that well that would i think from what i when i talk to libertarians that are into drugs and things like that. They're more of a libertarian liberal, and 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 I, while I don't support drug use at all, um, it, it's I kind of like well, you know what, do what you want to do, but don't expect me to help you out when you crash, kind of yeah. thing. And then that sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's well, pretty much being an adult. It's got to be kind of difficult for you being a, a libertarian and and a, a Christian, if you will, because of the fact that it kind of clashes. 
because most of the classic libertarians are for the the open drug uh, decriminalization, whereas the Christian kind of clashes with that. You're not supposed to do stuff like that. Oh, no, I, I still maintain you're not supposed to do that. But I don't want the government to tell you that you're not supposed to do that. The Bible should tell you that. Okay, okay. All right, so... Um, I, I know from some of the past things that you're, you're, uh, uh, a fellow Trump supporter. I, I can assume anyway. I am now. I was not in 2016. Okay. Okay. So what changed it? Well, several things. Um, first off, and the reason I was not a Trump supporter in 2016 was for one reason and one reason only. He used to be a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was enough. I, for I was me. definitely not a fan of that myself, actually. Yeah, I, that was enough for me. I was like, yeah, whatever. Uh, as long as he beats Hillary, I'm good. But <laughs> since since that happened and the way he really stuck to his principles, and you can tell that it's it's, it's got to be uh, it's got to be wearing on him in some form, but he still. Um, stands his ground and he does the right thing and the results that he's putting out is good for so many different people and then the more people lie on him and the more obvious it is it's, it's kind of what now I can say that I am a Trump boy okay okay I, I, I definitely agree I think it's got to be got to be very trying on a this is the first president at least since i'm i'll be 32 this next week and i've never seen a president go through as much uh hatred as this one has went even even you know back when i was younger you know bill clinton who did the things he did and and george w bush who in my opinion was a horrible president even he didn't yeah, go he, he a lot of things fly. yeah he was he was uh he was what i like to call the the idiot cowboy president and he even he didn't go through nearly the hate that donald trump has went through and donald trump is has has given up a lot i mean he's a billionaire that he can't make you know, money off of his own companies right now as president. It's a law. He's right. given up. He's given up his presidential salary. He donates it every quarter to a charity. Right. So he's the only president in history that I, well, I mean, I assume back in, you know, when, when America first was founded, they might not have gotten paid. I haven't never really researched that, but in modern history, he's the first president that's never even took a paycheck. Right, and and that's that's one of the things that cemented it, and the the fact that it seems like that doesn't really get out. See, when you hide something, it seems like I smell it, and yeah. then I have to go and say, "Hey, wait a minute." Oh, uh, you have the, the the guy before him, who I never supported, and because I met him, and I didn't like him from that moment, but you have somebody who comes in worth, I don't know what, hundred fifty thousand dollars yeah i mean he's worked he works eight years he works eight years at four hundred twenty-five thousand a year and leaves out of office worth 21 million just in real estate so the math yeah. doesn't add up yeah 
I, I've I noticed mean, a lot of a lot of the former presidents have came in not worth much, and when they get out, they're they're in the millionaire category, and it's like, yeah, how but, does that work? How do, how does and it's even Congress and Senate are the same way. How do you get into something with lint in your pockets and walk out with gold bars? Something yeah, just but, doesn't work. But but the thing that really gets me is that even though you walked out that advanced, you still have the nerve to tell me that you're oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that I, I don't know if you've been watching the, the Democratic National Convention. I've been watching most of it each night because of the, the show. And I, I'm... Uh, I'm just shocked at the amount of people that can have a net worth that's more than most Americans will see in 10 lifetimes. And they have the audacity to tell me that they're oppressed and they're, they're kept down. They have the, they have the net worth of a small country GDP. You're going to tell me that you're oppressed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I got to tell you, I, I tried to support, Obama his first year or two um I tried I I didn't agree with a lot of his policies but I tried to to sit back and say you know hey obviously everybody I didn't vote in in either of his two elections so I don't have a whole lot of room to talk about him getting elected or reelected but mm-hmm. when your policies lead to us paying our enemies two and a half billion dollars that's a problem for me when your policies lead to our soldiers being tortured and killed by terrorist organizations that's a problem for me and a lot of liberals and leftists they overlook those little those little things but they're the first ones to jump on donald trump because he made a, a comment that they didn't they didn't agree with well, the thing about most liberals, and you hate to generalize people, but most liberals don't like the military to begin with. Yeah, that's that, and that's so, one of the main reasons I'm a conservative is because I do support. I was in the military for a few years, and I have friends that I grew to be best friends with that got sent overseas and killed. Right. And I, I so was in the military. My two brothers were. So, yeah, yeah. My, a lot of a lot of my family has been in it over the years, and for anybody to tell me that the military, it, it's okay for them to just die, for our president to keep up his relations with other countries is is a vile thing to me. Right, it is, absolutely is. Um, but yeah, that that was one of the matter of fact. That was how I left what I call the. The liberal plantation was being in the military, and because I was in the military back when Clinton did that massive military slash thing, yeah. And, and you want to talk about a panic? Watching brothers literally become vultures because they were trying their best to save their military careers. Yeah, it was one of the weirdest and most disheartening things to watch. So, hey. so uh, we'll we'll get get a a little into the to the lighter subjects here. So, um, what is if 
if it came down to obviously it's coming down to Joe Biden and Donald Trump, what would be one reason that you would vote Joe Biden is if there is one? Um, I, I lost my mind and I was high and got kidnapped. <laughs> and that was part of my ransom or my family would get killed. Pretty much that. <laughs> well, okay. okay. I, don't see, I don't see any scenario where I can voluntarily vote Joe Biden or any, or any Democrat. That's that's where I am. So there was there was no Democrat front runner at any time that you would have voted for? Not ever, ever. I haven't even considered a Democrat since the 90s. Wow. Okay. See, I, I when when I was watching, there was the fifteen thousand Democrats running all at one time. I yeah. I was I was interested in in Andrew Yang. He was about the only one that, and and that was because I think from what I saw anyway, he was the most central, less crazy of all of them. Well, see, that was his persona. But when he started talking, and and what really was the end for him was that fifteen hundred dollar. Yeah, that, that he, wanted, he wanted to give everybody free money. He wanted everybody to give free money. Sense. But at least, and what I had to respect about Yang is, and I, I, like I said, I like to, you know, analyze all of them. But what at least what I liked about Yang is that he was up front. Hey, look, this ain't gonna work. But this is what I want to do. You know, at least, and it wasn't all about, hey, I hate Trump. Yeah, that's what I think drew me to him as much, is that he was one of the few that wasn't, everything out of his mouth was, I hate Trump, I hate Trump, I hate Trump. Yeah, so I I really had, I really had to respect him for that. I mean, like I said, I never would have voted for him. Like, if, if he was the only one on the ballot, I would just sit at home. (laughs) yeah yeah definitely joe biden i think you you almost have to have slipped into some sort of dementia state to to think that he this guy who can barely remember his name without a name tag he forgets where he's at he confused his his wife and his sister for whatever weird reason he's i mean on stage he bit his wife's hand i don't even know what he was thinking (laughs) <laughs> he, I, I watched I watched last night when his wife was doing the speech at the DNC and he, he strolls in casually I was shocked that he could find his way from the basement to the school where she was filming because he he's just lost and it's borderline uh, elderly abuse for the Democrats to run this yeah, man I wouldn't even call that borderline I would even call that borderline it's, it's to the point where like somebody should say, "Hey, Joe," but now it's too late. Yeah, he's he's late. in like now. Somebody should There's say, "Hey, they, man, they I don't can't think... stop it." Yeah, it's it's too late, and the only and I had some I had some theories of what would happen. The reason why the party chose Kamala Harris is I don't think Joe Biden did because he mm-hmm. has to remember why he chose her. Yeah. So I think so, and what I'm thinking is going to happen. And I could be wrong. This is, could be just my author side speaking. What I think is going to happen if Joe Biden wins the election, because anything's possible with Democrats. If Joe Biden wins the election, 
they're going to immediately use the 25th Amendment on him. They already tried it with Trump. Or they're going to use him as a figurehead and Kamala Harris is going to run the country. But it's more advantageous for the Democrats to use the 25th Amendment because then they get that first black female president that they want. And that's and that's what I've been saying is I think that what they're going to do is if if the the snowball's chance in hell that he has of winning, he wins. I think six months in, if that, they're going to deem him unfit. They're going to take him out, stick him in the in the old folks' home, and move Kamala in, and be able to say we have the first black female president. And she didn't even have to technically run. But and then also that that moves Nancy Pelosi up to vice president, which serves yeah. her purposes. Which is horrible because that means that then Kamala Harris will probably get assassinated so Nancy Pelosi could take over because she is the devil incarnate. I have I have said yeah. that for a long time. Yeah, I, I and I that's why and you know, I've thought about that because before Harris was selected, I said, you know. The only person that will give Joe Biden any chance of winning is by selecting Michelle Obama. See, that's what I said but, too. That I was, I was assuming that was what his pick was going to be. And I was like, okay, that's why they're waiting for it so long because they're going to roll it out right about the time Trump does something good and try to smoke the uh, smoke the news cycle. Apparently, that didn't happen because Michelle was pretty smart about this thing. So, and, and that's saying something because as much as she likes to be front and center of everything and uh, that uh, that that speech last night holy crap. I, I didn't even know it, it was sad. It was, it was sad. You know, the, the things that she kept talking about and the lies she had going on there, that was pretty sad. I mean, really, all every person that's given a speech so far has ha, has just reached and reached like Stretch Armstrong, and they, they keep bringing up things that have been proven false, things that yeah. have been debunked, and, and you could really see the reach that they're pulling, trying to keep their base as close as possible. They can talk all day about how Trump panders to his base, but they pander even harder to their base and they go about it in a very sly, sneaky way. Yeah. I I mean, are we still talking about good people on both sides? Are we still doing this? Yeah. And they keep mentioning that they keep mentioning this. It is what it is when clearly if you listen to the whole speech, he was talking about it is what it is as opposed to what they were saying. Right. It wasn't it is what it is because people were dying. He was saying it is what it is as compared to what people were saying about him and coronavirus. It, it, it just befuddles me at how these people can you could you could show them the, the direct transcript and they're still going to say, oh, that's a lie. That's a lie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're just a Trump supporter. And, you know, and and I like I told someone, I said, you know, I was a Trump supporter, but the way y'all keep calling me that because I have common sense, I guess I will be. 
Yeah. And I wonder there, there's a lot of people that are showing up on social media timelines that I never would have thought would be a Trump supporter. Yeah, but I'm starting to see more forward. and more switch from from the the moderate area over into the conservative Trump supporter area because the left pushes them away and then they wonder why they don't have the 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 base that they once did. It's because you you alienate them simply because they don't agree with something you said. I've seen people right. that are liberals that say, hey, that w- that's a lie. He didn't say that. And they call them a racist Trump supporter. Now then people are like, okay, well, I guess I'm a Trump supporter then. F off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look what they did to Alan Dershowitz. Yeah. And all he said was, hey, man, that's not legal. Um, who's that guy? What's his name? Oh, Leo Terrell. That guy... He was so, he was so far in the, the what I call the liberal plantation. It didn't even make any sense. But now he's wearing a, a "Make America Great Again" hat. Yep, it, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it it's it really just goes to show how far they'll drive anybody away that doesn't agree with even one one thing that they say, let alone multiple things that they say. Yeah. And and not one person in two days has said anything about Portland or Seattle. Well, and, no, and I, I said it. I said it last night on the show that they always say what they're gonna do. They say, well, they say, you know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna stop systematic racism, but they never say how they're gonna stop systematic racism because they know they can't. Exactly. The reason why they can't is because of two reasons. Number one, you cannot control behavior or thought. We've tried that as humans. We tried it with religion. We we tried it with laws. We tried it with stuff like prohibition. People will do what they want to do. And number two, racism is a learned behavior. So as long as you are teaching the fact that there is a racism and people try to figure out what that is, some people, as ignorant as they are, will be rapists. So I mean, and, it's, and, and it's, I think it's, it's crazy because they, you know, nobody is saying that there are not racist people in America. I mean, you'd be you'd be stupid, you'd be Joe Biden right. to think that. But right. to say that that America is systematically racist is ridiculous because if we were systematically racist in this country. There would be no Barack Obamas. There would be no Jay Zs. There would be no be LeBron no James. And it, no. and 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 here's a here's a real here's a real killer. When when you mentioned Jay Z, Jay Z is one of the most racist people in the limelight today. He is literally okay. So a lot of people don't know, but there's this racist group called the Five Percenters. I think that's what they call. And they basically say the same things that the Aryans and the neo-Nazis and the KKK said about black people, but they just take the word black and substitute it with white. Um, and it's and he wears this medallion. I don't think you very much see it anymore because you slipped up and had it out and someone asked him about it, and you just kind of laughed it off. But this is medallion that he wears that's 
it symbolizes the five percenters. So and I, I, I've never I've never paid enough attention, honestly, to him. I I mean I've heard his his racially charged agenda that he's done. I mean, oh, yeah. he's he's been very open with the fact that he dislikes white people to to the core. But right. it, it's it's crazy to think that people can that we can have billionaires who are African American, who are Asian, who are uh, you know, Latino and think that America is systematically prejudiced toward them. If if we were that prejudice it would be the 1940s again and and there would be no black billionaires there would be no black millionaires there'd be no black kids in college trump has given more black kids scholarships than any other president in history including the first black president right and and you know i even i've started to question the narrative that we know about the 40s and the reason why i started questioning it um, is because prior to that, um, I, I was working with a guy for a very brief time. I, there's a guy named Christopher Harris, and he runs a group called Unhyphenated America. And we were talking, and he said, do you know that at the end of slavery, at the very end of slavery, given the size of the United States at that time, Black people, freed slaves, freshly freed slaves, owned enough land to fill up South Carolina. Now, wow. we, as far as black people are concerned, we own about as much land, I think, to fill up Rhode Island or Delaware or something silly. And so I got to thinking about that, and it, it really kind of struck home. Wait a minute. Frederick Douglass's second wife was white. Yep. So it, it started, I mean, even though I'm starting to call into question a lot of the, the narratives that we're being told, even though the people who did these injustices were Democrats. Yeah, and that's what a lot of the liberals will will not understand. They don't understand that the South was Democrat. When, right. when you talk about the Civil War and you talk about the people who, quote unquote, fought to keep slaves, as they like to describe the Civil War, right. it was Democrats that did it. It was Democrats who fought against Martin Luther King and the the Civil Rights Acts. It wasn't Republicans. Republicans right. voted unanimously to pass that. It right. was the Democrats, was Democrats that, that fought against it. And it was Democrats that filibustered it in 1958. Yep. You can't tell liberals that because they've been brainwashed so bad over the years that their party is the party of of the the little people the party of the minority and it it's not always been that and it's still not that to this day they just would like with joe biden he he assumes he has the black vote that's why he can go oh. on camera and say if you don't vote for me you're ain't you ain't black yeah i was <laughs> I, I i thought that was going to be the end of his uh into his presidential run. I really did. And you know, the I, sad I thing is, is that I knew that. in the back of my mind, I, I said it, it's, that's the most racist thing I've heard a president say, or a presidential candidate say in a very, very long time. And I knew that it wouldn't change anything because liberals will literally hear that and say, Oh, that's, that that's not racist. 
that's that's well, that's I don't Joe know, Biden. I don't know if if you look at Charlemagne's the God's face when Joe says that. Yeah, he looks like shocked. he was black. He was he was he was actually shocked, and you don't see Charlemagne the God shocked at a whole lot of being said to him, and he right. was shocked. I I thought he was going to turn the camera off and be done right then. <laughs> yeah, like he literally looked like someone slapped him. <laughs> I was like, oh, and and, and I was you know, shocked the, that he was shocked. The sad thing is, is that that liberals literally defended it on Twitter, Facebook, all of social media. They defended it. They were like, they were like, that's, that's not racist. That that's really racist. Could you imagine if Donald Trump went out on stage and said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. He would have been assassinated. He would have been shot on the spot, dead on the stage. If he'd have said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't white. That, that's a wrap. That's all. Everything oh, yeah. Is, it's all yeah. Rap. Even if even if you even if you switch the, the races up, I mean, it, it, it anything he says is racist, according to, to everybody now. So, I mean, he right. can go out there and say, hey, how you guys doing today? That's racist. I've never oh, seen sexist. I've never <laughs> seen a a president be lambasted so much for simply saying what every other president has always said. You know, he could get out on stage and say to the people of the United States, I am Donald Trump. Racist. Racist. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, this next couple of months, this I, 74 days or 75 days, how many ever days there are, I quit counting anymore. How many yeah. ever days are left, that's going to dictate where this this country goes and in what direction because if if they get mail-in ballots the i think joe biden's going to take it simply because that's so easy for them to fix it would it would almost be a cakewalk for the democrats to walk away with it if they can't get the mail-in ballots i think i think donald trump has it because of the what they call silent majority which i think is stupid i think that it should be the the loud and vocal majority to show these people what they're dealing with. But so many people are scared to come out as a Trump supporter or a conservative because they don't want to get docked. They don't want to get harassed. They don't want to get assaulted. Well, I think that tide is turning, Johnny. Yeah, I'm hoping it's starting to turn. I've noticed a lot more Hollywood celebrities are kind of coming out slowly and they're they're coming out saying, hey, you know, like Mario Lopez, I would have never guessed him to be a, a somewhat conservative. But when he yeah. came out and they and he said that he was a conservative and they lambasted him so bad, it it just it it hurts me on a on an emotional level because there's you shouldn't be assaulted and harassed based on who you support for president of the United States. I I feel that that is just horrible yeah i agree with that with that but i'll I tell you that happened i need to verify um i i am a avid motorcycle rider and a lot of my friends are from what i heard and i like i said i have not verified this yet antifa showed up at be at the uh, sturgis rally yeah they actually have video of it they actually have video oh. of the altercation. I don't. I don't know for sure if it was 
you know, quote unquote Antifa, they were dressed similar. So if it wasn't, it was a very good lookalike. But they have actual videos up that um, are circulating right now of bikers just, I mean, giving a, a, a melee in to these to these people that uh, showed up to to protest against Sturges. And I got to tell you, I've I've never been more proud of of the people who everybody looks at as the criminals of of the the white uh, race uh, bikers. Everybody always labels them as the bad people, you know, the one percenters and stuff. And I I was super proud to see them defend themselves because. Antifa has ran roughshod over everybody that they've came across because they have the tactics oh. of of uh, multiple assaulting. They got the the concrete shakes, they got the bars, they got the, the you know brass knuckles, and to see the the bikers take that and say, you know what, let's go, I'm down. I was I was l- giddy inside, if you will. <laughs> Uh yeah, but it, yeah, it's uh it's a I think like I said, I think that tide is turning. Um and I'm welcoming it. Well, we will we will keep the countdown going to see um how how this plays out in November. I I appreciate you uh coming on and talking a little bit. Uh go ahead and uh give a a link or or how people can get a hold of you and get uh get to your show oh uh like i said my name's joe johnson if you look on the uh if you look on anchor or spotify uh it's on every it's supposed to be on every major platform you may have to look it up under race slaughter because i put it under my pen name for some odd reason um well, I, I'll I make sure and, I'll, I'll make sure and put all the links to your to your stuff in the description, so that way people can get get uh, to your show and uh, make sure everybody to to give a like, listen. I've listened to um, quite a few episodes now, and it's great stuff. It's pretty compelling when you get into it. I uh, thank you for that. I thank you. I've been listening to yours too, and that's so like, oh man, I gotta I gotta get into it with this guy because you know I, it's. Having the truth being told, no matter in in aspect or in multiple aspects of our lives, is is a really important thing. Um, because you you tell one lie and you take a little bit of lie, and you wrap a little bit of truth around it, it's it's really devastating to people. And yeah. you know this is why I do it. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I'll put the links to all your stuff in the description, and um, I'll, I'd love to have you on a, on another show uh, for a whole a whole segment. That way, we can get all kinds of talking done. We can get all kinds of truth out. I will do again. I think I'm losing you again, but yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you have a good day, man. All right. Thank you too. Thanks for having me on. And of course, thank you again, Joe Johnson, for being on the show, giving us your input, and Hopefully we can have you on uh, again at a later time. Hopefully I can come on to yours, give my opinions on what you guys got going on over there. Again, if you'd like to follow Joe Johnson and the podcast Not Touching My Nose, you can search that on Spotify, Anchor, anywhere where podcasts are available. You can find it. It's called Not Touching My Nose. 
So aside from the pre-recorded Zoom sessions and the cringe exploitation of children, the rest of the DNC was just a bitter wife segment, really. The rest of the speakers really did nothing but bash Trump and forget everything about the last four years except for the last four or five months. They talked about his lack of ability and activity during COVID. You know, like when he tried to put a travel ban at the very beginning to slow the chance of it reaching the U.S. and was called a racist bigot. Or when he tried to tell Americans not to trust China on what they were saying because it usually lies. Or like when he brought us to the highest testing of any country in the world. The highest. Yeah, they forgot all that for their trademark comment of it is what it is, unemployment, and orange man bad. <laughs> they act as if the last four or five months erased the last four years of highest employment rate, lowest minority, and, and black unemployment rate in history, the highest GDP growth, lower taxes on the middle class, lowest that they've been in quite a while, highest job mobility rate, highest job growth, so on and so on and so on. I'm not going to go over every speech tonight, just the major ones. I'll be doing the minor ones tomorrow night to spread out the ignoramusness of it. First, I do want to go over the highlights of the comedy stylings of the woman who hasn't been relevant since the last show about nothing, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who, thank God, isn't related to Richard Dreyfus, because he's actually funny. She hosted the last night of the DNC and had some jokes fall flatter than her dancing on Seinfeld. Take a listen. And to remind you that Joe Biden not only knows how to read, but also he reads everything. An easy way to remember 30330 is that's the year Donald Trump will finally release his tax returns. If we all vote, there is nothing Facebook, Fox News, and Vladimir Putin can do to stop us. Just remember, Joe Biden goes to church so regularly that he doesn't even need tear gas and a bunch of federalized troops to help him get there. Text VOTE to 30330. 30330. That would be the president's golf score if he didn't cheat. Okay, look, I'll admit that was a little nasty, but we all know he's a cheater. And I'm proud to be a nasty, nasty woman. You know, when Donald Trump spoke at his inauguration about American carnage, I assumed that was something he was against, not a campaign promise. Tonight, I couldn't be prouder to be a loyal union member, a passionate climate activist, and a patriotic Democrat, or as Donald Trump will call me in a tweet tomorrow, a washed-up horse face, no talent has been with low ratings. Well, with all due respect, sir, it takes one to know one. His real warmth and kindness on that call Man, I gotta say, it made me cry. Our current president has made me cry too, but it's never had anything to do with his warmth or kindness. 30330, it's actually not that hard to remember. Watch. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, 30330. Anyone can do it.
Yeah. Yeah, you sure showed Trump, huh? Let's see. She said, it takes one to know one when talking about Trump possibly calling her a washed-up has-been with no ratings. 85.4 million followers on Twitter. 30-some-odd million followers on Facebook. 28.1 million viewers on the series finale of The Apprentice TV show. Millions and millions of views on any video on YouTube that mentions him. Compared to Julia's 1.1 million followers on Twitter, her non-existent Facebook page, like she literally doesn't have one, or at least that I found, and a groundbreaking 553,000 viewers of Veep. I mean... Back in 1998, the Seinfeld finale got 76.3 million viewers, but even that can't be really counted because of those 76 million, most tuned in to see Kramer, and that's a fact. So, I'd say Julia might be a bit behind the dawn. Huh? I mean, numbers don't lie, really. On to the finales of each night. First night three ended with Kamala and Barack Hussein Obama, the divider and the incarcerator, the Kenyan and the Asian, the one who bended at the knee to terrorist, and the one who bended at the waist for Willie Brown. First up was Kamala. Take a listen. Greetings, America. It is truly an honor to be speaking with you tonight. That I am here tonight is a testament to the dedication of generations before me. Women and men who believed so fiercely in the promise of equality, liberty, and justice for all. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, and we celebrate the women who fought for that right. Yet so many of the black women who helped secure that victory were still prohibited from voting long after its ratification. But they were undeterred. Without fanfare or recognition, they organized and testified and rallied and marched and fought, not just for their vote, but for a seat at the table. These women and the generations that followed worked to make democracy and opportunity real in the lives of all of us who followed. They paved the way for the trailblazing leadership of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And these women inspired us to pick up the torch and fight on. Women like Mary Church Terrell, Mary Cloyd Bethune, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Diane Nash, Constance Baker Motley, and the great Shirley Chisholm. We're not often taught their stories, but as Americans, we all stand on their shoulders. And there's another woman whose name isn't known, whose story isn't shared, another woman whose shoulders I stand on, and that's my mother, Shamala Gopalan Harris. 
She came here from India at age 19 to pursue her dream of curing cancer. At the University of California, Berkeley, she met my father, Donald Harris, who had come from Jamaica to study economics. They fell in love in that most American way while marching together for justice in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In the streets of Oakland and Berkeley, I got a stroller's eye view of people getting into what the great John Lewis called good trouble. When I was five, my parents split, and my mother raised us mostly on her own. Like so many mothers, she worked around the clock to make it work, packing lunches before we woke up and paying bills after we went to bed, helping us with homework at the kitchen table and shuttling us to church for choir practice. She made it look easy, though it never was. My mother instilled in my sister Maya and me the values that would chart the course of our lives. She raised us to be proud, strong black women. And she raised us to know and be proud of our Indian heritage. She taught us to put family first, the family you're born into and the family you choose. Family is my husband, Doug, who I met on a blind date set up by my best friend. Family is our beautiful children, Cole and Ella, who call me Mamala. Family is my sister. Family is my best friend, my nieces, and my godchildren. Family is my uncles, my aunts, and my chitties. Family is Mrs. Shelton, my second mother who lived two doors down and helped raise me. Family is my beloved Alpha Kappa Alpha, our divine nine, and my HBCU brothers and sisters. Family is the friends I turn to when my mother, the most important person in my life, passed away from cancer. And even as she taught us to keep our family at the center of our world, she also pushed us to see a world beyond ourselves. She taught us to be conscious and compassionate about the struggles of all people, to believe public service is a noble cause and the fight for justice is a shared responsibility. That led me to become a lawyer, a district attorney, attorney general, and a United States senator. And at every step of the way, I've been guided by the words I spoke from the first time I stood in a courtroom. Kamala Harris for the people. I have fought for children and survivors of sexual assault. I fought against transnational criminal organizations. I took on the biggest banks and helped take down one of the biggest for-profit colleges. I know a predator when I see one. My mother taught me that service to others gives life purpose and meaning. And oh, how I wish she were here tonight, but I know she's looking down on me from above. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, 
who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. I do so committed to the values she taught me, to the word that teaches me to walk by faith and not by sight, and to a vision passed on through generations of Americans, one that Joe Biden shares, a vision of our nation as a beloved community where all are welcome no matter what we look like, no matter where we come from, or who we love. A country where we may not agree on every detail, but we are united by the fundamental belief that every human being is of infinite worth, deserving of compassion, dignity, and respect. A country where we look out for one another, where we rise and fall as one, where we face our challenges and celebrate our triumphs together. Today, that country feels distant. Donald Trump's failure of leadership has cost lives and livelihoods. If you're a parent, struggling with your child's remote learning, or you're a teacher struggling on the other side of that screen, you know what we're doing right now is not working. And we are a nation that is grieving. Grieving the loss of life, the loss of jobs, the loss of opportunities, the loss of normalcy, and yes, the loss of certainty. And while this virus touches us all, we got to be honest, it is not an equal opportunity offender. Black, Latino, and indigenous people are suffering and dying disproportionately. And this is not a coincidence. It is the effect of structural racism of inequities in education and technology, healthcare and housing, job security and transportation, the injustice in reproductive and maternal healthcare, in the excessive use of force by police, and in our broader criminal justice system. This virus, it has no eyes, and yet it knows exactly how we see each other and how we treat each other. And let's be clear, there is no vaccine for racism. We've got to do the work for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, for the lives of too many others to name, for our children, and for all of us. We've got to do the work to fulfill that promise of equal justice under law. Because here's the thing, none of us are free until all of us are free.
So we're at an inflection point. The constant chaos leaves us adrift. The incompetence makes us feel afraid. The callousness makes us feel alone. It's a lot. And here's the thing. We can do better and deserve so much more. We must elect a president who will bring something different, something better, and do the important work. A president who will bring all of us together, black, white, Latino, Asian, indigenous, to achieve the future we collectively want. We must elect Joe Biden. And I will tell you, I knew Joe as vice president. I knew Joe on the campaign trail. And I first got to know Joe as the father of my friend. So Joe's son, Bo, and I served as attorneys general of our states, Delaware and California. During the Great Recession, he and I spoke on the phone nearly every day, working together to win back billions of dollars for homeowners from the big banks that foreclosed on people's homes. And Bo and I, we would talk about his family, how as a single father, Joe would spend four hours every day riding the train back and forth from Wilmington to Washington. Bo and Hunter got to have breakfast every morning with their dad. They went to sleep every night with the sound of his voice reading bedtime stories. And while they endured an unspeakable loss, those two little boys always knew that they were deeply, unconditionally loved. And what also moved me about Joe is the work that he did as he was going back and forth. This is the leader who wrote the Violence Against Women Act and enacted the assault weapons ban, who as vice president implemented the Recovery Act, which brought our country back from the Great Recessions. He championed the Affordable Care Act, protecting millions of Americans with pre-existing conditions, who spent decades promoting American values and interests around the world. Joe, he believes we stand with our allies and stand up to our adversaries. Right now, we have a president who turns our tragedies into political weapons. Joe will be a president who turns our challenges into purpose. Joe will bring us together to build an economy that doesn't leave anyone behind, where a good-paying job is the floor, not the ceiling. Joe will bring us together to end this pandemic and make sure that we are prepared for the next one. Joe will bring us together to squarely face and dismantle racial injustice, furthering the work of generations. Joe and I believe that we can build that beloved community, one that is strong and decent, just and kind, 
one in which we can all see ourselves. That's the vision that our parents and grandparents fought for, the vision that made my own life possible, the vision that makes the American promise for all its complexities and imperfections a promise worth fighting for. So make no mistake, the road ahead is not easy. We may stumble. We may fall short. But I pledge to you that we will act boldly and deal with our challenges honestly. We will speak truths, and we will act with the same faith in you that we ask you to place in us. We believe that our country, all of us, will stand together for a better future. And we already are. We see it in the doctors, the nurses, the home health care workers, and frontline workers who are risking their lives to save people they've never met. We see it in the teachers and truck drivers, the factory workers and farmers, the postal workers and poll workers, all putting their own safety on the line to help us get through this pandemic. And we see it in so many of you who are working, not just to get us through our current crisis, but to somewhere better. There's something happening all across our country. It's not about Joe or me. It's about you. And it's about us. People of all ages and colors and creeds who are, yes, taken to the streets, and also persuading our family members, rallying our friends, organizing our neighbors, and getting out the vote. And we have shown that when we vote, we expand access to health care, and expand access to the ballot box, and ensure that more working families can make a decent living. And I'm so inspired by a new generation. You, you are pushing us to realize the ideals of our nation, pushing us to live the values we share, decency and fairness, justice and love. You are patriots who remind us that to love our country is to fight for the ideals of our country. In this election, we have a chance to change the course of history. We're all in this fight. You, me, and Joe, together. What an awesome responsibility. What an awesome privilege. So let's fight with conviction. Let's fight with hope. Let's fight with confidence in ourselves and a commitment to each other, to the America we know is possible, the America we love. And years from now, this moment will have passed, 
and our children and our grandchildren will look in our eyes and they're going to ask us, where were you when the stakes were so high? They will ask us, what was it like? And we will tell them. We will tell them not just how we felt. We will tell them what we did. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. And justice for all. Hmm. Except the justice for the men and women who you hid evidence to keep their convictions from being overturned when you were California AG, right? She talked about the 19th Amendment, women's rights. She said all the women who fought for that. Crazy, because I could have swore it was men who brought it up to be voted on and men who voted it into the Constitution. Do they not get recognized? For all, huh? Just full-on rain man. That's what they've become. That's what the left's become. She spoke about injustice in the criminal justice system. You know, the system she was employed by for years as attorney general, where she locked up how many young black men and women for simple marijuana possession charges. The system that she used to enact Joe Biden's crime bill under Bill Clinton's war on drugs campaign. That system... She gave a shout-out to George Floyd, you know, the drug addict, who held a pregnant woman at gunpoint before pistol-whipping her and then robbing her, and Breonna Taylor, the drug dealer whose boyfriend was a drug dealer and shot at the police through a closed door, causing them to return fire, killing her. Yeah, she gave them a shout-out. Of course, she couldn't list off the rest, so I will. Eric Garner, who was illegally selling cigarettes and resisted officers in New York City. Mike Brown, who stole from a convenience store and then resisted arrest, actually grabbing the officer's gun and then fleeing. Freddie Gray, the man who was illegally carrying a switchblade knife and then resisted arrest. Rayshard Brooks, who was so intoxicated and high he passed out in a Wendy's drive-thru, and when the officers gave him a field sobriety test, he failed miserably, and then he resisted arrest, fought the two officers, dropped one officer on the top of his head, then grabbed the taser from the second officer, and fled before turning and firing the taser at the officer's face. Trayvon Martin, who was walking in the rain, and when accosted by George Zimmerman, decided he'd fight with Zimmerman, and was shot. Those people are who the left always goes to. And all of those were pretty damn justified. The theme of those is, if you fight the cops, you get shot. I mean, plenty of white people, Latino people, Asian people, Native American people, have all died by the police. But the left would have you believe it's only black people. They push the false narrative until the wheels fall off. Okay, up next was Barack Obama, the golden boy, the, the quote-unquote greatest president ever. I mean, he, he, was, he was just a black guy, and, and they've lifted him up to a godlike status, but they're but then they turn around and, and scream at Trump supporters because 
They say we hold Trump to a godlike status. You can't win to lose with these morons. That's why you just gotta hit them with the facts. And what they do with that is beyond me. Take a listen. Good evening, everybody. As you've seen by now, this isn't a normal convention. It's not a normal time. So tonight, I want to talk as plainly as I can about the stakes in this election. Because what we do these next 76 days will echo through generations to come. I'm in Philadelphia, where our Constitution was drafted and signed. It wasn't a perfect document. It allowed for the inhumanity of slavery and failed to guarantee women, and even men who didn't own property, the right to participate in the political process. But embedded in this document was a North Star that would guide future generations. A system of representative government, a democracy, through which we could better realize our highest ideals. Through civil war and bitter struggles, we improved this Constitution to include the voices of those who'd once been left out. And gradually, we made this country more just and more equal and more free. The one constitutional office elected by all of the people is the presidency. So at a minimum, we should expect a president to feel a sense of responsibility for the safety and welfare of all 330 million of us, regardless of what we look like, how we worship, who we love, how much money we have, or who we voted for. But we should also expect a president to be the custodian of this democracy. We should expect that regardless of ego, ambition, or political beliefs, the president will preserve, protect, and defend the freedoms and ideals that so many Americans marched for, went to jail for, fought for, and died for. I have sat in the Oval Office with both of the men who are running for president. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. That he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends, no interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. 170,000 Americans dead. Millions of jobs, gone. While those at the top take in more than ever. 
our worst impulses unleashed, our proud reputation around the world badly diminished, and our democratic institutions threatened like never before. Now, I know that in times as polarized as these, most of you have already made up your mind. But maybe you're still not sure which candidate you'll vote for or whether you'll vote at all. Maybe you're tired of the direction we're headed, but you can't see a better path yet. Or you just don't know enough about the person who wants to lead us there. So let me tell you about my friend, Joe Biden. Twelve years ago, when I began my search for a vice president, I didn't know I'd end up finding a brother. Joe and I come from different places, different generations, but what I quickly came to admire about Joe Biden is his resilience, born of too much struggle, his empathy, born of too much grief. Joe is a man who learned early on to treat every person he meets with respect and dignity, living by the words his parents taught him. No one's better than you, Joe, but you're better than nobody. That empathy, that decency, the belief that everybody counts, that's who Joe is. When he talks with someone who's lost her job, Joe remembers the night his father sat him down to say that he'd lost his. When Joe listens to a parent who's trying to hold it all together right now, he does it as a single dad who took the train back to Wilmington each and every night so he could tuck his kids into bed. When he meets with military families who've lost their hero, he does it as a kindred spirit, the parent of an American soldier, somebody whose faith has endured the hardest loss there is. For eight years, Joe was the last one in the room whenever I faced a big decision. He made me a better president, and he's got the character and the experience to make us a better country. And in my friend Kamala Harris, he's chosen an ideal partner who is more than prepared for the job. Someone who knows what it's like to overcome barriers and who's made a career fighting to help others live out their own American dream. Along with the experience needed to get things done, Joe and Kamala have concrete policies that will turn their vision of a better, fairer, stronger country into reality. They will get this pandemic under control like Joe did when he helped me manage H1N1 and prevent an Ebola outbreak from reaching our shores. They'll expand healthcare to more Americans, like Joe and I did 10 years ago, when he helped craft the Affordable Care Act and nail down the votes to make it the law. They'll rescue the economy, like Joe helped me do after the Great Recession. I asked him to manage the Recovery Act, which jump-started the longest stretch of job growth in history. And he sees this moment now not as a chance to get back to where we were, but to make long overdue changes so that our economy actually makes life a little easier for everybody. Whether it's the waitress trying to raise a kid on her own, or the shift worker always on the edge of getting laid off, 
for the student, figuring out how to pay for next semester's classes. Joe and Kamala will restore our standing in the world. And as we've learned from this pandemic, that matters. Joe knows the world and the world knows him. He knows that our true strength comes from setting an example that the world wants to follow. A nation that stands with democracy, not dictators. A nation that can inspire and mobilize others to overcome threats like climate change and terrorism, poverty and disease. But more than anything, what I know about Joe, what I know about Kamala, is that they actually care about every American and that they care deeply about this democracy. They believe that in a democracy, the right to vote is sacred and we should be making it easier for people to cast their ballots, not harder. They believe that no one, including the president, is above the law and that no public official, including the president, should use their office to enrich themselves or their supporters. They understand that in this democracy, the commander in chief does not use the men and women of our military who are willing to risk everything to protect our nation as political props to deploy against peaceful protesters on our own soil. They understand that political opponents aren't un-American just because they disagree with you. A free press isn't the enemy, but the way we hold officials accountable. That our ability to work together to solve big problems like a pandemic depend on a fidelity to facts and science and logic and not just making stuff up. None of this should be controversial. These shouldn't be Republican principles or Democratic principles. They are American principles. But at this moment, this president and those who enable him have shown they don't believe in these things. Tonight, I'm asking you to believe in Joe and Kamala's ability to lead this country out of these dark times and build it back better. But here's the thing, no single American can fix this country alone, not even a president. Democracy was never meant to be transactional. You give me your vote, I make everything better. It requires an active and informed citizenry. So I'm also asking you to believe in your own ability to embrace your own responsibility as citizens to make sure that the basic tenets of our democracy endure. Because that's what's at stake right now. Our democracy. Look, I understand why a lot of Americans are down on government. The way the rules have been set up and abused in Congress make it easier for special interests to stop progress than to make progress. Believe me, I, I know it. I understand why a white factory worker who's seen his wages cut or his job shipped overseas might feel like the government no longer looks out for him. 
and why a black mom might feel like it never looked out for her at all. I understand why a new immigrant might look around this country and wonder whether there's still a place for him here. Why a young person might look at politics right now, the circus of it all, the meanness and the lies and conspiracy theories and think, what is the point? Well, here's the point. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. They know they can't win you over with their policies. So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. How our health systems will let more people fall through the cracks. That's how a democracy withers until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. Make a plan right now for how you are going to get involved and vote. Do it as early as you can and tell your family and friends how they can vote too. Do what Americans have done for over two centuries when faced with even tougher times than this. All those quiet heroes who found the courage to keep marching, keep pushing in the face of hardship and injustice. Last month, we lost a giant of American democracy in John Lewis. And some years ago, I sat down with John and a few remaining leaders of the early civil rights movement. One of them told me he never imagined he'd walk into the White House and see a president who looked like his grandson. And then he told me that he had looked it up. And it turned out that on the very day that I was born, he was marching into a jail cell, trying to end Jim Crow segregation in the South. What we do echoes through generations. Whatever our backgrounds, we are all the children of Americans who fought the good fight. Great grandparents working in fire traps and sweatshops without rights or representation. Farmers losing their dreams to dust. Irish and Italians and Asians and Latinos told, go back where you come from. Jews and Catholics, Muslims and Sikhs made to feel suspect for the way they worshiped. Black Americans chained and whipped and hanged, spit on for trying to sit at lunch counters, beaten for trying to vote. If anyone had a right to believe that this democracy did not work and could not work, it was those Americans, our ancestors. They were on 
the receiving end of a democracy that had fallen short all their lives. They knew how far the daily reality of America strayed from the myth. And yet, instead of giving up, they joined together. And they said, somehow, some way, we are going to make this work. We are going to bring those words in our founding documents to life. I have seen that same spirit rising these past few years. Folks of every age and background who packed city centers and airports and rural roads so that families wouldn't be separated, so that another classroom wouldn't get shot up, so that our kids won't grow up on an uninhabitable planet. Americans of all races joining together to declare in the face of injustice and brutality at the hands of the state, that black lives matter. No more, but no less. So that no child in this country feels the continuing sting of racism. To the young people who led us this summer, telling us we need to be better, in so many ways, you are this country's dreams fulfilled. Earlier generations had to be persuaded that everyone has equal worth. For you, it's a given, a conviction. And what I want you to know is that for all its messiness and frustrations, your system of self-government can be harnessed to help you realize those convictions for all of us. You can give our democracy new meaning. You can take it to a better place. You're the missing ingredient. The ones who will decide whether or not America becomes the country that fully lives up to its creed. That work will continue long after this election. But any chance of success depends entirely on the outcome of this election. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down if that's what it takes for them to win. So we have to get busy building it up by pouring all our efforts into these 76 days and by voting like never before for Joe and Kamala and candidates up and down the ticket so that we leave no doubt about what this country that we love stands for today and for all our days to come. Stay safe. God bless. He took every opportunity to try and push the false narratives of the left. A lot of people touted it as his best speech. I mean, for a pre-taped speech, it wasn't bad, except he was pushing the false narrative. But what's to be expected from the left and the guy whose only rightful claim to eight years of running this country is the highest unemployment and the biggest racial divide? 
I kind of quit listening about the time that he said, As you can see, this isn't a normal convention. Next was night four, and it ended with Joe Biden, who, surprisingly enough, didn't gaff. Is it sad that this is the first time on camera where he didn't gaff? Good evening. Ella Baker, a giant of the civil rights movement, left us with this wisdom. Give people light, and they will find the way. Give people light. Those are words for our time. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together and make no mistake. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. We'll choose hope over fear, facts over fiction, fairness over privilege. I'm a proud Democrat, and I'll be proud to carry the banner of our party into the general election. So it's with great honor and humility, I accept this nomination for president of the United States of America. But while I'll be a Democratic candidate, I will be an American president. I'll work hard for those who didn't support me, as hard for them as I did for those who did vote for me. That's the job of a president, to represent all of us, not just our base or our party. This is not a partisan moment. This must be an American moment. It's a moment that calls for hope, and light and love, hope for our future, light to see our way forward, and love for one another. America isn't just a collection of clashing interests of red states or blue states. We're so much bigger than that. We're so much better than that. You know, nearly a century ago, Franklin Roosevelt pledged a new deal in a time of massive unemployment, uncertainty, and fear. Stricken by a disease, stricken by a virus, FDR insisted that he would recover and prevail, and he believed America could as well. And he did, and we can as well. This campaign isn't just about winning votes. It's about winning the heart and, yes, the soul of America. Winning it for the generous among us, not the selfish. Winning it for workers who keep this country going, not just the privileged few at the top. Winning it for those communities who have known the injustice of a knee on the neck. For all the young people who have known only America being rising inequity and shrinking opportunity, they deserve the experience of America's promise. They deserve to experience it in full. You know, no generation ever knows what history will ask of it. All we can ever know is whether we're ready when that moment arrives. And now history has delivered us to one of the most difficult moments America has ever faced. Four, four historic crises, all at the same time. A perfect storm, the worst pandemic in over 100 years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, 
the most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s, and the undeniable realities and just the accelerating threats of climate change. So the question for us is simple. Are we ready? I believe we are. We must be. You know, all elections are important. But we know in our bones this one is more consequential. As many have said, America is at an inflection point, a time of real peril, but also of extraordinary possibilities. We can choose a path of becoming angrier, less hopeful, more divided, a path of shadow and suspicion, or, or we can choose a different path and together take this chance to heal, to reform, to unite, a path of hope and light. This is a life-changing election. This will determine what America is going to look like for a long, long time. Character is on the ballot. Compassion is on the ballot. Decency, science, democracy, they're all on the ballot. Who we are as a nation, what we stand for, and most importantly, who we want to be, that's all on the ballot. And the choice could not be more clear. No rhetoric is needed. Just judge this president on the facts. Five million Americans infected by COVID-19. More than 170,000 Americans have died. By far the worst performance of any nation on earth. More than 50 million people have filed for unemployment this year. More than 10 million people are going to lose their health insurance this year. Nearly one in six small businesses have closed this year. And this president, if he's reelected, you know what will happen. Cases and deaths will remain far too high. More mom and pop businesses will close their doors, and this time for good. Working families will struggle to get by. And yet the wealthiest 1% will get tens of billions of dollars in new tax breaks. And the assault on the Affordable Care Act will continue until it's destroyed, taking insurance away from more than 20 million people, including more than 15 million people on Medicaid, and getting rid of the protections that President Obama worked so hard to get passed for people who have 100 million more people who have pre-existing conditions. And speaking of President Obama, a man I was honored to serve alongside for eight years as vice president. Let me take this moment to say something we don't say nearly enough. Thank you, Mr. President. You were a great president, a president our children could and did look up to. No one's going to say that about the current occupant of the White House. What we know about this president is if he's given four more years, he'll be what he's been for the last four years. President takes no responsibility, refuses to lead, blames others, cozies up to dictators and fans the flames of hate and division. He'll wake up every day believing the job is all about him, never about you. Is that the American you want for you, your family, your children? I see a different America, one that's generous and strong, selfless and humble. It's an America we can rebuild together. As president, the first step I will take will be to get control of the virus that has ruined so many lives. Because I understand something this president hasn't from the beginning. 
We will never get our economy back on track. We will never get our kids safely back in schools. We'll never have our lives back until we deal with this virus. The tragedy of where we are today is it didn't have to be this bad. Just look around. It's not this bad in Canada or Europe or Japan or almost anywhere else in the world. And the president keeps telling us the virus is going to disappear. He keeps waiting for a miracle. Well, I have news for him. No miracle is coming. We lead the world in confirmed cases. We lead the world in deaths. Our economy is in tatters with black, Latino, Asian American, Native American communities bearing the brunt of it. And after all this time, the president still does not have a plan. Well, I do. If I'm your president on day one, we'll implement the national strategy I've been laying out since March. We'll develop and deploy rapid tests with results available immediately. We'll make the medical supplies and protective equipment that our country needs. And we'll make them here in America so we will never again be at the mercy of China or other foreign countries in order to protect our own people. We'll make sure our schools have the resources they need to be open, safe, and effective. We'll put politics aside. We'll take the muzzle off our experts so the public gets the information they need and deserve. Honest, unvarnished truth. They can handle it. We'll have a national mandate to wear masks, not as a burden, but as a patriotic duty to protect one another. In short, we'll do what we should have done from the very beginning. Our current president has failed in his most basic duty to the nation. He's failed to protect us. He's failed to protect America. And my fellow Americans, that is unforgivable. As president, I'll make you a promise. I'll protect America. I will defend us from every attack, seen and unseen, always, without exception, every time. Look, I understand. I understand how hard it is to have any hope right now. On this summer night, let me take a moment to speak to those of you who have lost the most. I have some idea how it feels to lose someone you love. I know that deep black hole that opens up in the middle of your chest and you feel like you're being sucked into it. I know how mean and cruel and unfair life can be sometimes. But I've learned two things. First, your loved one may have left this earth, but they'll never leave your heart. They'll always be with you. You'll always hear them. And second, I found the best way through pain and loss and grief is to find purpose. As God's children, each of us have a purpose of our, in our lives. We have a great purpose as a nation to open the doors of opportunity to all Americans to save our democracy, to be a light to the world once again, and finally to live up to and make real the words written in the sacred documents that founded this nation, that all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
You know, my dad was an honorable, decent man. He got knocked down a few times pretty hard, but he always got back up. He worked hard, and he built a great middle-class life for our family. He used to say, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I sure in hell expect them to understand them. And then he'd say, Joey, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it. I've never forgotten those lessons. That's why my economic plan is all about jobs, dignity, respect, and community. Together, we can and will rebuild our economy. And when we do, we'll not only build back, we'll build back better. With modern roads, bridges, highways, broadband, ports and airports as a new foundation for economic growth, with pipes that transport clean water to every community, with five million new manufacturing and technology jobs so the future is made in America, with a healthcare system that lowers premiums, deductibles, drug prices, by building on the Affordable Care Act he's trying to rip away, with an education system that trains our people for the best jobs of the 21st century. There's not a single thing American workers can't do. And where cost doesn't prevent young people from going to college and student debt doesn't crush them when they get out. With a child care and elder care system that makes it possible for parents to go to work and for the elderly to stay in their homes with dignity. With an immigration system that powers our economy and reflects our values. And with newly empowered labor unions. They're the ones that built the middle class. With equal pay for women, with rising wages, you can raise a child on, a family on. And yes, we're going to do more than praise our essential workers. We're finally going to pay them, pay them. We can and we will deal with climate change. It's not only a crisis, it's an enormous opportunity an opportunity for America to lead the world in clean energy and create millions of new good-paying jobs in the process. And we can pay for these investments by ending loopholes, unnecessary loopholes, and the president's $1.3 trillion tax giveaway to the wealthiest 1% and the biggest, most profitable corporations, some of which do not pay any tax at all. Because we don't need a tax code that rewards wealth more than it rewards work. I'm not looking to punish anyone. Far from it. But it's long past time the wealthiest people and the biggest corporations in this country paid their fair share. And for our seniors, Social Security is a sacred obligation, a sacred promise made. They paid for. The current president is threatening to break that promise. He's proposing to eliminate a tax that pays for almost half the Social Security without any way of making up for that lost revenue, resulting in cuts. I will not let that happen. If I'm your president, we're going to protect Social Security and Medicare. You have my word. One of the most powerful voices 
we hear in the country today is from our young people. They're speaking to the inequity and injustice that has grown up in America. Economic injustice, racial injustice, environmental injustice. I hear their voices. If you listen, you can hear them too. And whether it's the existential, th existential threat posed by climate change, the daily fear of being gunned down in school, or the inability to get started in your first job, it will be the work of the next president to restore the promise of America to everyone. And I'm not going to have to do it alone, because I'll have a great vice president at my side. Senator Kamala Harris, she's a powerful voice for this nation. Her story is the American story. She knows about all the obstacles thrown in the way of so many in our country. Women, black women, black Americans, South Asian Americans, immigrants, the left out and the left behind. But she's overcome every obstacle she's ever faced. No one's been tougher on the big banks and the gun, on the gun lobby. No one's been tougher in calling out the current administration for its extremism, its failure to follow the law, its failure to simply tell the truth. Kamala and I both draw from our families. That's where we get our strength. For Kamala, it's Doug and their families. For me, it's Jill and ours. I've said many times, no man deserves one great love in his life, let alone two. But I've known two. After losing my first wife in that car accident, Jill came into my life. She put our family back together. She's an educator, a mom, a military mom, and an unstoppable force. If she puts her mind to it, just get out of the way. <laughs> She's going to get it done. She was a great second lady. And I know she'll make a great first lady for this nation. She loves this country so much. And I'll always have the strength that can only come from family. Hunter, Ashley, all our grandchildren, my brothers, my sister, they give me courage. They lift me up while he's no longer with us. Bo inspires me every day. <clears throat> Bo served our nation in uniform. A year in Iraq, a decorated Iraqi war veteran. So I take very personally and I, the profound responsibility of serving as commander in chief. I'll be a president who will stand with our allies and friends and make it clear to our adversaries the days of cozying up to dictators is over. Under President Biden, America will not turn a blind eye to Russian bounties on the heads of American soldiers. Nor will I put up with foreign interference in our most sacred democratic exercise, voting. And I'll always stand for our values of human rights and dignity. I'll work in common purpose for a more secure, peaceful, and prosperous world. History, history has thrust one more urgent task on us. Will we be the generation that finally wipes out the stain of racism from our national character? I believe we're up to it. I believe we're ready. Just a week ago yesterday, was the third anniversary of the events in Charlottesville.
close your eyes. Remember what you saw on television. Remember seeing those neo-Nazis and Klansmen and white supremacists coming out of fields with lighted torches, veins bulging, spewing the same, same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. Remember the violent clash that ensued between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And remember what the president said when asked? He said there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. It was a wake-up call for us as a country, and for me, a call to action. At that moment, I knew I'd have to run, because my father taught us that silence was complicity. And I could never remain silent or complicit. At the time, I said we were in the battle for the soul of this nation. And we are. You know, one of the most important conversations I've had this entire campaign, it was, some, it was someone who was much too young to vote. I met with six-year-old Gianna Floyd the day before her daddy, George Floyd, was laid to rest. She's an incredibly brave little girl. And I'll never forget it. When I leaned down to speak to her, she looked in my eyes and she said, and I quote, Daddy changed the world. Daddy changed the world. Her words burrowed deep into my heart. Maybe George Floyd's murder was a breaking point. Maybe John Lewis is passing the inspiration. But however it's come to be, however it's happened, America's ready, in John's words, to lay down, quote, the heavy burden of hate at last, and to end the hard work of rooting out our systemic racism. You know, American history tells us that it's been in our darkest moments that we've made our greatest progress, that we found the light. In this dark moment, I believe we're poised to make great progress again that we can find the light once more. You know, many people have heard me say this, but I've always believed you can define America in one word, possibilities. The defining feature of America, everything is possible. That in America, everyone, and I mean everyone, should be given an opportunity to go as far as their dreams and God-given ability will take them. We can never lose that. In times as challenging as these, I believe there's only one way forward. As a united America, a united America, united in our pursuit of a more perfect union, united in our dreams of a better future for us and for our children, united in our determination to make the coming years bright. Are you ready? I believe we are. This is a great nation. We're a good and decent people. For Lord's sake, this is the United States of America. And there, there's never been anything we've been able to accomplish when we've done it together. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney once wrote, history says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, 
the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme. With passion and purpose, let us begin, you and I together, one nation, under God, united in our love for America, united in our love for each other. For love is more powerful than hate. Hope is more powerful than fear. And light is more powerful than dark. This is our moment. This is our mission. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight as love and hope and light join in the battle for the soul of the nation. And this is a battle we will win and we'll do it together. I promise you. Thank you and may God bless you and may God protect our troops. Good night. <laughs> uh, I, I wish that I did a video podcast so you could see how hilarious he was at reading that teleprompter for the entire speech. <laughs> I mean, and the left ate this up. They praised Biden for being able to read. You can't make this stuff up. Listen to CNN and their correspondent. And that sound that you hear all across the country is the sound of Democrats exhaling. That's what that is. We, people would, would have accepted anything. We just wanted Joe to get out there so, you know, sometimes when he gets out there, you're afraid he's going to make a mistake. He's going to have a gaffe. The, the set expectations are just so low. And then he came out there and he gave an extraordinary speech. And we were prepared for it to be a terrible speech. As long as he didn't embarrass himself, we were going to come out here and praise it. You don't have to make nothing up tonight. Joe Biden did that thing tonight. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I completely agree with Van. I am the hardcore, fiercest partisan here. He, I am just like, if I could jump out of the chair, I mean, this is the best <laughs> night for Joe Biden ever. Really, this is so fantastic. Yeah, and this was the best I've ever seen him. It felt like history has been pushing Joe forward for tonight. I said before that Donald Trump has been losing and this convention is a chance for Joe and Kamala to start winning. And they are now on track to start winning in addition to Trump shooting himself in the foot. I said, while I was watching Joe speak, I said Joe Biden is going to be our next president. Biden made it through, you know, expectations were low. Uh, I think <laughs> they were set low by everyone, Trump and the Democrats, and so he made it. You know, Van Jones said it best. We would have accepted anything. Yeah, we know, because you've accepted all his gaps over the last year, Van. Listen, these people are nuts. They've openly said that they'll vote slow Joe in simply because he's not Trump. I don't know why anyone's surprised by anything the left does anymore. So the night ended with fireworks and Joe Biden eagerly putting his mask on, then taking it off, then putting it back on. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe a small boy or girl walked by and he had to take it off to grab a quick sniff. I don't know. But in my opinion, the fireworks were the highlight of all four nights combined. And that's sad. That's, that's truly sad that the fireworks display outshined the 500 some odd speakers that they had zooming and Skyping in 
to talk about Joe Biden. But that's all the time that we have for tonight. Tune in tomorrow as I wrap up the DNC minor speeches and look ahead at the RNC next week. This has been the Johnny Ray Show. Thank you for tuning in and don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. And until tomorrow night, good night and God bless.